Hey, everybody. Welcome to No Small Thing, the podcast dedicated to helping you live a less certain and more curious life. I'm Scott. And I am Mace. Welcome to episode 159, y'all. Damn. Drum roll, fireworks. I think we'll call it Lil Nas X with a Sean Crawley, something like that. Yeah. Welcome, everybody. Here we are. <laughs> if you're wondering what is this audio, don't worry. This audio is not what the audio will be for this entire episode. <laughs> the podcast, and you're like, this is cruddy audio. I'm never listening to this again. Well, today my son has my car. And I have no way of getting around, so I can't get to our quote-unquote recording studio, which is at Mace's house, and so we're just Zooming. I'm at my house, and Mace is at their house, and we're also slightly slightly lazy and don't want to set up a, a big thing with our computers and our microphones. <laughs> I don't want to do it. <laughs> so welcome to this episode. I am so stoked about this episode and this conversation. Yeah. No, honestly, if we could create a different dimension of reality where we frequently, many, many times got to talk to a Sean, that would be ideal. But the times that we get to are very fun and special. They truly are. Okay, so should we explain a little bit of what this episode is or this yeah. conversation was? You know that like uh, we have this I work for Beloved Arise. We host a affirming youth group for Beloved Arise. We've talked about that extensively on this podcast now. And this last Wednesday, Wednesday, right? It was uh, something that we sort of have, I think, pretty much initiated and launched, which is this celebration called Queer Youth of Faith Day. This was the second annual Queer Youth of Faith Day kind of coming at the end of Pride. And we had sort of this digital festival going on throughout the day where there were live podcasts and concerts and conversations and small groups that you could be a part of. So this was the no small thing contribution to Queer Youth of Faith Day. A conversation about Little Nas X with the Sean Crawley. Yeah, exactly. In, in contribution to Queer Youth of Faith Day. Yeah. I so sadly couldn't be there, but I was there in spirit for this conversation. So I, like you listeners, will be along for the ride. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It was really sweet. So we, we made it so people could show up live. So I think we had like 12 students in there. Towards the end of the conversation, you'll hear us create some space for uh, people to ask questions of Ashan. So it was just cool for the energy and the vibes to have other young folks in the room um, listening to this conversation. And, you know, Ashan, and Ashan says this in the episode, which was help, helpful and good. Uh, is, oh my gosh. I'm going to take my computer downstairs because of my dog. <laughs> I can edit this out. This is the jankiest intro we've ever done. You're the first one here. I have to go downstairs. Okay. Make yourself at home. Oh, no problem. Who is that? Don't know. <laughs> we have to deal with it. Where were we? Okay, so this was for Queer Youth of Faith Day, but one of the things that Sean, uh, Sean clarifies during our conversation is that he's agnostic. He did grow up in the church. He, he, he uh, actually went to seminary. He wanted to be a music pastor. I think I get that right. Sean, hopefully I'm getting that right if you're listening. Um, and, and yet, I thought it was an appropriate conversation because the Lil Nas X video for Call Me By Your Name or Montero, um, is 
is, I think that's the subtitle, Montero, Call Me By Your Name. I think that's the subtitle of this. I think it's, I think you might be right. Yeah. Well, anyways, it doesn't matter. I don't have to get it perfectly correct, but um, in the video, there's a lot of religious imagery and for uh, queer youth of faith and for the students that we work with, um, there is a lot of stuff going on in this video that I think is really relevant and pertinent to our kids because this religious imagery has been used to instill deep, deep fear. Yeah, yeah. And so Ashan wrote a, a piece for NPR that, you know, was just perfect about how he grew up with this religious fear of Satan and, and hell and damnation and eternal torment. And, um, you know, Lil Nas X in this video just, you know, turns that all on its head and takes the power or the sting out of it. So mm -hmm. it was a really cool conversation. I mean, Ashan is just here for the long deep dives, which is why we love him so much. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, and I feel Ashan in so many ways just has a spirit of dreaming and creativity and honestly curiosity. So um, for folks who are NST folks, um, we just love you getting the chance to hear Ashan. I think that just hearing from Ashan helps, helps me to be less certain and more curious in my daily walk, honestly. Yeah. So we, we want to just point you in his direction. Spiritual mysticism walk <laughs> that sounded like old school christianese my daily walk how's your walk me <laughs> no honestly i did but i'm true it's true i'm like honestly, ashan's some many of ashan's writings i'm like daily encourage me <laughs> it's very true um okay, everyone. It's, a, it's a really great conversation and i hope i hope I hope you all enjoy it. And I hope we can have a Sean back on the pod someday to talk about anything and everything. But uh, yeah, we're excited for you to hear this one, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And um, yeah. Bye. Enjoy. Okay, I guess this will be the official beginning of the conversation, Sean. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I guess let me start with an introduction for the people that are in here live, but for the people that watch this later, obviously. Um, and I'm just going to read the little thing from the end of your NPR article. Okay. So you, you can obviously add to it if you want, but... Um, Ashan is Ashan Crawley is associate professor of religious studies and African American and African studies at the University of Virginia, and the author of *The Lonely Letters* and *Black Pentecostal Breath: The Aesthetics of Possibility*. He is currently at work on a book about the Hammond B3 organ, the Black Church, and sexuality. And I guess I'll just add to that by saying, um, I encountered Ashan by reading a great piece that you had written in NPR on Kanye West's album *Jesus Is King*. And I was having a really hard time processing that album. So your <laughs> article really helped me. And it was in that season of like, gosh, I wonder if I could possibly get Sean to be on the podcast uh, just because it would have been so fantastic to have talked to you. And it's so funny to think about you thinking about, I'm going to read something at the end of our conversation from something you've written about otherwise possibilities. And it says dreams that have us saying, I hope this comes true. And it was like, I hope we can get a Sean on the podcast. That was, a, <laughs> I hope this comes true. Um, but yeah, we had you on the podcast and then, um, you came and visited our youth group and shared your story. 
And it was just a beautiful evening of getting to, again, sort of casually long form hearing your story and then having people be able to casually ask you questions. It was very intimate and very sweet. Um, and so like the first time I talked to you, we had just started this youth group. I, I had no idea what I was doing in terms of like hosting a digital youth group. Um, and I didn't even know if it was going to survive. And now it's like, uh, essentially we have over 200 plus kids joining us from all oh, over the world every week. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So yeah, it's, it's just so nice to have you sort of in like adjacent to our community in a way. And um, just so you know, and I guess this is turning into a much longer introduction, but uh, I, I think this concept of otherwise has been a guiding light for us. Uh, it's something that is sort of a bit of a, a mantra or a theological grounding or anchor point. And sometimes I'm trying to talk about, well, what is it that we're doing in this youth group called Rebel? And I think part of what we're doing beyond being an affirming space is trying to dream up otherwise possibilities together. Mm-hmm. So that's been a beautiful mm-hmm. concept for us. But anyways, everybody, that's my long introduction to Ashan. <laughs> um, and then, and then, and then, and then you wrote this amazing article about Lil Nas X. And so I guess in terms of this is like the last thing on this day that we've been hosting all day, which has sort of been an online festival. So queer youth of faith day, I think how appropriate is it to end a day talking about queer youth of faith with this powerful piece that Lil Nas X made dealing with all this religious imagery and mm-hmm. the thoughts mm-hmm. and things you had to say about it. So, I mean, is, is there anything else you'd want to say as an introduction to yourself? <laughs> okay. That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here <laughs> and to join you all and to see your squares and some of your faces. So, yeah. you know, that's, that is, you know, I don't need long introductions. I'm fine. Beautiful. Um, yeah, and you all, it's it's fine. I have my grid so I can see your faces. It's kind of fun to see your faces. You don't have to stay dark, but you can stay dark if that makes you more comfortable. But definitely stay muted, I guess. But uh, honestly, if you're here live, uh, towards the end, I'd love for you all to uh, feel free to ask some questions. And since it is such a small group, I think we could probably do that v- verbally. I, I'm yeah. making it. I know everybody on the screen here, so I know that would that would work. Um, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Um, Okay, Ashan, I, I think I just have your article in front of me. And I, I, I wonder if, if I can just start by reading the very beginning and see what that, how that gets us started. And, and I, I, I know it often probably feels a little bit masochistic to always go back in time and, and relive trauma or fear or your upbringing. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like that's an important part of the piece to set up how you encountered this video. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, you said at the very beginning, and I know this is something a lot of our students can relate to. Fear was the air that we breathed. There was talk of joy, too, of course. There was music and dance and, quote, unquote, getting happy. But there was also fear, always fear. And I didn't know I didn't have to be afraid. What, 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 what would you have to say about, like, growing up with that fear? Um, just especially in terms of what it was like to grow up in the church. I mean, you know, I think that across a lot of my writings, what I try to do is to talk about the complexity that often <clears throat> gets rendered out of um, out of religious practices and religious communities for people who, you know, say that they're spiritual but not religious, or people who say that they're atheists, or people who say that they're agnostic. And oftentimes I find it to be, um, it's, it's a reaction to the doctrinaire and sort of 
deeply violent practices of sort of theological positioning that lots of these religious communities have. But what ends up happening is a kind of flattening of texture and a flattening of um, a flattening of what is really complex um, in the service of like trying to free people from um, messages that are harmful, spaces that are harmful, um, practices that are harmful. And so one of the things I'm trying to do across um, all of my writing, especially whenever I try to talk about, you know, what Ashan experienced as a young person is I'm, you know, I don't like the memoir as like a, as a genre of writing. I don't, you know, really care about reading about people's personal lives just to read about their personal lives. What I'm trying to do when I do talk about um, sort of past experiences is to try to recover what it felt like to exist in those moments um, and why it's so difficult to escape them. Um, I think that one of the things that we lose when we flatten the texture and complexity of religious space is that we, we flatten and, and we refuse to actually acknowledge that for a lot of us, it's actually a place that feels really good most of the time that it can be a place where joy happens. It's a place where love does happen. It's a place where you're sharing food and you have friendships and you have family. And so these places are places that are difficult to leave precisely because they have impacted us in oftentimes very whole, whole and nurturing ways. And trying to talk about the fear, I think what I'm trying to do, at least in the Little Nas X piece, is to say that the feel the, the fear feels so insurmountable precisely because one of the things that you experience is joy. That the joy that you experience does not actually take away the fear, the joy in many instances. This is actually helping me figure some other stuff out. <laughs> the joy that you fear, that the joy that you feel can often um, intensify the feelings of fear that you might be experiencing. And so I'm trying to, at least in that opening, um, talk about the, you know, the fact that fear was always alongside the, the effervescence, the pleasure, the, the, the spiritedness that we were feeling in these Pentecostal congregations and that the fear didn't go away and often the fear felt so much more um, deep and urgent because you could experience this delight, this rapture, this, 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 this love, this capacity for being in caring and dense relationship with one another. And so that's what I think I'm trying to do. Um, that's why I try to talk about it because I think it's an attempt to honor the fact of the complexity and why so many people find it really difficult to even want to imagine alternatives because yeah, yeah, I'll stop there. Um, yeah, I think ha having had all these conversations with these students now, I think that's one of the things that, that I encounter a lot is like, we're offering, we're obviously offering a, an affirming digital space, but, um, you know, we're not in the same town with most of the students that are in our youth group. And, they a lot most kids continue to engage with their non-affirming church and it is because what else are they going to do um it's a group of people that in some ways do care for them and in some ways they 
have experienced joy and support. Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, like you putting words to that, uh, I think another thing you write in that early part is just the idea of, um, power and the way adults wielded power and even that, um, pastor who sort of giggled at you and called you a bad boy and nobody would stop him. Um, and that does seem to be something that, uh, I think a lot of people don't understand is, um, you can try to be a quote unquote welcoming church without being affirming. But when you have this ultimate stance that um, being queer is sinful, it allows for a lot of terrible behavior from people that doesn't get called out. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you know, the church was very much a, you know, queerness is sinful place. So it wasn't even like pretending to be anything (laughs) close to the, the concept of affirming at all even though, you know, I remember very, very clearly the pastor, the pastor of this particular church, not the one who was visiting, who made those comments to me, but the pastor of this um, particular church that we were visiting um, in Northern New Jersey could not have been anything more than, you know, at that time I was 17, 16 or 17. So everyone looked old to me, but I think he's probably mid twenties. And um, he contracted HIV and he died quickly after that. Um, and the, it was just like the, and he was also, according to the rumors and the gossip, he was also a queer person. And um, what is so tragic to me, right, is that on the one hand, you have this person who is visiting and, you know, I guess this, this is why I didn't say the person's name, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but like, because, you know, I'm not interested in like, you know, the salacious stories of people. I don't, you know, that's another thing I don't care about sharing. But I do want to at least be clear that the person who was hitting on me as I am a teenager is a person who was also queer. Um, and I didn't understand that at the time that he was queer. And I think that the older I became, the more sitting with the story of this man who is hitting on this teenager became not just one, like I was angry about it for a very long time. And I, and I am very much not angry about it as much as I am heartbroken over the fact that this person too, it seemed was suffering under a theological and a theological set orientation and a doctrinal position that condemned himself. And so he is acting, it seems to me, um, harmfully to others because he's acting, he's harming himself. And he's harming himself precisely because of the theological messages that have been produced on him too. And it seems that the, the same sort of theological messages that are being produced on him that he's sort of reacting to and acting harmfully within are also the theological positions of the pastor of that church who is living with um, a a health um, issue that gets moralized as an individual's moral and ethical failure. And so it's tragic because there is this, like on the one hand, this person is literally preaching against like the sins of of the homosexual. Well, at the same time, it is very, very apparent that there is a kind of queerness in this church, a queerness of these people who are visiting. And like no one is ever supposed to talk about not the complexity of that. I'm sorry, 
we can talk about the contradictions of it and be dismissal, dismissive of it, but we're not supposed to talk about the complexity of it. And so really trying to like talk about the complexity without ever saying that this person didn't harm and so what they did was good or justified, but still trying to understand something of the complexity, mostly so that we don't continue to reproduce these behaviors, these practices, these modes of violence against one another under different guises. And so, you know, I just, I, I find the whole, like the, the shadow story that's in the um, piece, but that isn't sort of explicitly talked about in that piece is the tragedy of the pastor and the tragedy of the visiting preacher in a kind of tragedy of this entire sort of this sort of theological orientation that has everyone being deeply dishonest about who they are about their capacity for joy their capacity for love their capacity for care and so they engage in all kinds of harmful practices precisely because we can't we won't we won't talk about the complexity it's interesting too that a scene it seems my, my understanding of the story is that he, he was a music pastor. Like he was coming in to lead some music. Is that true? Well, he's a singer. Yeah. And, yeah. Singer. You know, for, you know, because I'm not trying to auto. Yeah. I'm not trying to, to create a biography of this person. Cause I want people to like, Oh, I wonder if it's this person. Right. 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 I'm, you know, I'm, I'm intentionally vague, but yes, yeah. he was, a, he was a musician. Yeah. I heard a preacher recently say something about that of like, um, we have to be careful about condemning queer folks because some of our best music is from queer folks. But again, it was not going as far as being affirming. It was like, let's be kind. Well, <laughs> if you're talking about that video is circulating again, mm-hmm. and I find it to be a huge problem. I think it was first, um, it first circulated maybe about five or six years ago, maybe even a little bit longer than that. Um, this pastor from um, Georgia who has a church in Atlanta. Um, his name is E. Dewey Smith, and he was preaching at a church in um, Washington, D.C., Greater Mount Calvary Holy Church. And, you know, the, the it's easy to share that snippet until one recognizes that he almost immediately recanted everything that he said because he, he said he didn't want people to think that he was actually affirming mm-hmm. queer people because at that moment he was saying he still thinks that queerness is sinful and that you know it's not right behavior and the Bible says that it is condemned. But he was just saying that you shouldn't pick and choose what kinds of things to condemn people for. And I think that is about refusing to trouble even the narratives or what the purpose of theology is supposed to be and the purpose of church is supposed to be. Like, you know, if the purpose of church is supposed to be about making people, coercing people into right behavior so that they can be coerced into a right relationship with the God figure, then of course you're going to try to do what you can to tell people that everything that they do is wrong. But like, if your idea of gathering in community with others is to produce a more just, ethical, caring, and loving world, then it becomes much less important to emphasize right individual behavior in terms of sex and sexuality, and much more 
how are the practices of relation ethically um, and caringly produced such that we can produce a more just world? And can we stop fetishizing um, individual sexual behaviors as if that can tell us something about the moral and ethical value of people? And can we instead focus on how are we being with one another in terms of kindness, tenderness, um, joyfulness, uh, and, and, and care, because perhaps there we will find, and then I think, you know, I don't, I'm agnostic, y'all should know by now, um, and so I don't read the biblical text um, pretty much at all, but I'm pretty, you know, sure that the narratives of Jesus that are told in the synoptic gospels are narratives of Jesus talking primarily about caring about and not about condemning them because of a doctrinal or theological orientation and position. And so I think that there's so much that is, yeah. And so that video circulating, I get why it circulates, yeah. the snippet yeah. of it, but it is for me such a huge problem precisely because that snippet doesn't actually even, even fully capture the, you know, it's not an affirming message, as you said. It is at most a kind of paternal, it's a kind of benevolent paternalism where it's, you know, no sin is greater than another sin. Right, and it's right, like, well, right, yeah, right, but right. what if I don't think of like the way that I practice relation as sinful, yeah. fundamentally? Yeah. Like, yeah. it is literally a different kind of epistemology or a different kind of understanding of relation to knowledge and, and re relation to relation itself. And so what if I don't think of like sexuality as a thing that could be sinful? then what does it mean that you're telling me that there's no sin greater than in order to talk about, well, I'm not going to talk about you lying because, or I'm not going to talk about you being gay because I'm not going to talk about this other person who's a liar. Right. And it's like, how are these things, these are not consistent yeah. um, categories. These are not consistent practices. What do you, but like, there's this the desire again to flatten texture in order to not actually deal with the complexity because you still want to hold on to the idea that what this is is fundamentally a problem that you shouldn't do and other people shouldn't do, but I'm not, not going to actually think about it. Yeah, I, I want to make sure we get to Little Oz X, but I, I was also listening to another interview that you did today, and I thought you made a comment that seemed so spot on, which is, is that the church is oftentimes set up to keep us very docile and not caring mm -hmm. about things we should care about. Yeah, I mean, that seems, you know, that seems to me to be the case that it, it, it oftentimes, not always, you know, but often what it can do is it can satiate us and tell us that we can be self-satisfied because, you know, the idea of a personal Lord and Savior uh, and, and thus a God figure that cares primarily as about the individual as the primary unit and marker um, through which holiness happens, through which um, salvation happens, is itself to me an epistemological problem that it, it assumes that the individual is the most important fundamental unit through which we can measure the way to practice justice, care, ethics, and morality with one another. And I'm not interested in a personal word and And so I think that 
theological orientations that take up the individual as the primary unit in order to think about the measure of your capacity for holiness, for example, is the production of a kind of docility. Because what you are mostly concerned about is, how am I doing? Am I reading my Bible? Am I reading my word? Am I doing my prayers? Am I doing, ex am I doing the best that I can do? It's so individual. Um, and it doesn't compel one to ask, what is my relation to the earth? What is my relation to the creaturely world? What is my relation to other people? Am I actually pursuing justice? Am I actually loving mercy? Am I, you know, am I doing those things that Micah 6 and 8 says that I'm supposed to do? Or am I focusing primarily on me as an individual and making sure my vertical relationship between myself and the, and the God figure is, you know, that I am ingratiating myself to a God? Like, that's... That, that can allow you then to not pay attention. You know, I think, you know, Jesus probably said this too, at least according to the, the gospel writers, that you're, you know, he didn't say it, but there's an intimation or <laughs> you know, one could summarize what he is saying is you're so deeply concerned about, you know, your orientation toward heaven that you are not concerned with your orientation towards everything that's happening around you. And, and that is itself a, a kind of deep, deep, um, it's, a, it's a deep, deep problem, but it, it, it makes you not numb to the world around you. It makes you callous and uncaring to the world around you. And the, you know, the, I grew up believing in the rapture because um, I grew up Pentecostal and you know, one literally, like the idea that Jesus will rapture the church and then the, the earth and everyone that's left who is unsaved will go through seven years of great tribulation, which is like war and just bloodshed and disease and famine. And like you're in heaven with Jesus, like worshiping is so deeply indicative of the problem. Like, and I remember as a young person who had questions but didn't know how to articulate them or curiosities, I was always curious about how does, we're supposed to be in heaven like rejoicing while literally like family and friends are on earth like dying or like not even just dying, but like having like cataclysm and crisis ongoingly and like i'm supposed to rejoice but because i'm a g like it just felt like the 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 antithesis of incarnation which is about being in the world in the flesh and like instead like we're supposed to be happy that we're in heaven not existing and you know not trying to struggle against injustice because it's your fault again it's the individual so it's your fault that you're still here. Those curiosities you, and questions were just you not trusting God's sovereignty, Sean. Well, that's what people would say. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, fine. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't trust that. Right, right. Um, and, I, and I never, and at this point, I never will. Because, yeah. you know, I, I started saying, see, Y'all can't be mad that I'm agnostic and I ask these kinds of questions. But I say <laughs> things like it to myself. So what's what's supposed to happen when you get to heaven and the 
God figure is like, oh yeah, by the way, I haven't figured out racism, sexism, homophobia, <laughs> misogynoir. I actually, so y'all are going to have to deal with that here too. Like, <laughs> that hurts. let me just be like, well, what was the purpose of all of this? Um, because somehow, somehow we have like assumed or like the, the a certain kind of theological orientation assumes that heaven or that earth is the place where we struggle, but heaven is the place that's going to be perfect. But like, what proof do you have of that? Yeah, I hope. I, mean, I, have, I, don't, I don't think any of us have been anywhere but here. Yeah. Because we're still here. That's yeah, true. <laughs> and so there is no proof. Literally, there is no proof about that other place being like perfect or at least devoid of these kind of systemic practices of marginalization and violence. I'm like, yeah, like that also would be like, I did all that struggling on earth and you telling me I got to come here and struggle too. And so like those kinds of curiosities really led me down various kinds of paths. But one of the paths that led me down was really trying to interrogate the ways that we think of the individual as the primary means through which salvation is supposed, or like the primary object through which salvation is supposed to occur. Because I think that is, you know, if I were committed to Christianity, I would be committed to a practice of Christianity that didn't think of the individual as the primary thing that we care about. Because, you know, because we actually don't care for individuals when we focus on the individual. Mm -hmm. And we don't actually care for the earth when we focus on the individual. We don't um, care for the social world when we care about the individual. Like, focusing on the individual actually interrupts our capacity to care for individuals. <laughs> Dang. I, I, I'm, I hope, I pray that we do a live conversation someday because I want to hear everybody like clap and cheer and laugh when you say these things. Yeah. But um, I know that's not why you're doing it. I'm rambling. So no, that's why you're the guest. <laughs> um, yeah, I think um, that that's so spot on. And I guess I also just want to make sure people know, like you, you did go to seminary and you grew up in church. And that's why I think you've, salvaged a lot of the things that you loved about your faith growing up and I even though you're agnostic in terms of your posture and stance towards Christianity I think like what I've said like otherwise possibilities and a lot of the things you write about in terms of dreams and hope and faith do require a faith of some kind um and so and even the idea of bloom you know I I love that you always end your reflections with bloom yeah 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 um I guess maybe to set us up to start talking about Lil Nas um, you said this about some of the imagery that, again, you were familiar with, which is like, I, I wish my computer didn't print out such a terrible version of the front picture of, I was like, dang, that's not a very good job. I can't find it, but it was like all brown. I was like, gosh, this is not, I wanted a, the, the bright color because that painting was so great. But um, yeah, you yeah. said, I never had a strong sense for the devil, for Satan. The concept was always blurry to me. I could never conjure an image of what hell would look like beyond the barest impressions of color and sound, deep reds, darkness, cries and hollers, loud. But I did have a sense for eternal torment because I felt tormented daily. I never bothered to think precisely about the structure of eternal damnation because I sensed damnation and turmoil as a daily weight. Um, and then here comes the little Nas thing. But what is so striking about the song, the video, and the running commentary he has offered through the social media is now how Lil Nas X works with, really metabolizes, and thinks with fear. Fear that is theologically produced and doctrinally maintained, practice of power, authority, control. The fear of being outed, the fear of rejection by the gods, 
the fear of erotic joy leading to premature death, the fear of eternal torment. That's a lot of heavy stuff, but um, I guess I would just set up to be like, what, when when you, Ashan, were wherever you were when you saw the video, what was your initial reaction? Like, what what were you feeling? What were you sensing? What were you? What was your first impression? I guess. Yeah, you know, I think that first I'll say that the image that um, you're ta- referring to from the piece, um, NPR commissioned the artist to make it, which I was um, very moved by. I didn't know that they would do something like that. Um, so it's actually the person drew a picture of me as a as a kid, which. I actually was like, yeah, you actually kind of, you kind of did a good job of making a kid a shot. Um, but like, I think that uh, when I first saw the video, I thought this is, this is fun. And it's, you know, it's making a comment about religion. There's a devil here and there's a garden and there's like kissing and stuff. But like, you know, I don't want to say that I didn't think it wasn't deep because I'm not saying that, but for me, it was really like, a, oh, this is a fun video. And that was my first impression. And I didn't really start paying attention to what was, to the dynamics in the video until I began to listen to or get a sense for the ways people were pushing back against the video, that the, the commentary that people were making about how it was satanic and how, you know, he's telling kids it's okay to gay and you know sending people to hell and this is not you know the bible says that this is an abomination like all of these things that people were saying and everything that people were saying I was like yeah but that's already in the video like yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that, that was like after like a cursory look at the video I was just like yeah everything that y'all are saying the video has already anticipated you saying and has answered that so why are you actually repeating the thing that the video has already critiqued. And it was because, oh, because y'all are actually not paying attention because it doesn't actually matter what the video is doing. What matters to you is the, you want to maintain your ability to say something as simple. And that's about the practice. It's just like that preacher, right? Where he can make a claim about, oh, I can tell you're a bad boy. Like without any, like, for me, what seemed like absolutely no like hesitation, like was just gleeful to say something like this. While at the same time, it's like, what are you, what are you saying? And do you see how this is at least a little bit contradicting what you just said while you were preaching? And also, kind of, I'm a teenager, and you are a very grown man. Like there was so much that didn't make sense about it, but it mirrored in the same way what people were saying who were angry with Lil Nas X for this video, the way that they were talking about the music video as if the music video weren't itself um, an object that was produced in order to critique those very things that people were saying. And it's like, oh, because you actually, you don't, you don't actually want to engage the imagery at all. You just want to be able to maintain your capacity to tell someone you're going to hell. And it's like, yeah, that don't matter. Like, it literally, if you look at this video, it doesn't matter to him if he's going to hell or not. He doesn't care. And so what power do you have if 
the thing that you are using to try to demean someone is, some, is something that they refuse in terms of a logic. Like, they're just like, he's like, this is not the logic that I have. I don't care that you think I'm going to hell. And in this particular instance, I think what's so fascinating about the video is that it doesn't even reject the idea or the concept of hell, right? He's not like, well, I don't care that you think this is me. I don't care if you think I'm going to hell because I don't believe it. He doesn't do that. He's just like, I don't care if you think I'm going to hell. And shows you a depiction of hell. And shows a kind of practice of relationality, fun, but also deep resistance in the place of hell. And so like, it's fascinating because he doesn't have to, it seems to me, move into a space of I'm not a believer or um, the places that you condemn me to are not real. That's not that's not, I mean, that might be what he thinks, but that's not what the video is doing. The video is like, well, what if we pretend that heaven and hell are real and that's where I'm going? Yeah. And that's why, that's why I like what's happening in the video so much because it is, it is using the very terminology and epistemology to break it open. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, it is, I, 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 I do think like, it's true that on the surface it, it does seem seem just kind of fun and it is fun. It is fun. A lot of cool special effects and his performances have been really great, but um, yeah, I don't know who is, I want to give him all the credit. Like he, he should get all the credit, but I also wonder who he's collaborating with and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what it's like to have your stuff read back to you, but I feel like this is like what Charlie Rose and Larry King do. So I'm like trying to <laughs> imitate them, but um I guess we went right to hell, but you, like you said, there's this sort of Eden scene at the beginning. Yeah, and this is yeah. just like classic Ashan too, whether it's like you engaging with Lil Nas X, but um, you know, there's all these scenes of sort of like um, pleasure that is probably prohibited in the garden or something like that. But um, you say the, the enjoyment is not benign or inconsequential. It is part of the mythology, the narrative of his hopes for life. Fun here is neither frivolous nor foolish. Play and enjoyment are urgent, and we must choose them, even in the face of a possible tormenting eternal. In the same way, it is crucial that this sentencing and death are public, that he is literally stoned by an angry crowd, though look close and you'll see they're hurling sex toys in place of rocks. The public nature of his trial is supposed to produce embarrassment and shame, the same weapons that the preacher, those preachers, who call out teenagers for prophecy, who call out teenagers for being bad boys. Um, So yeah, I guess I was just drawing attention to... Um, you know, the way that you say and talk a lot about like that, that um, enjoyment and love and um, touch and, and creation, these things are not frivolous things. They're, they're very important, especially in the work that you do. Um, yeah. They are not, they are not frivolous things. Yeah. Know? I continue to be a cheerleader for children's cartoons yeah, she ran the Warrior Princesses, Steven Universe, and Avatar: The Last Airbender, and, um, Craig of the Creek, <laughs> Summer Camp Island. You know, I'm like a, a fan of these things because they are what some people would presume to be frivolous, mm-hmm. um, but they're also like these shows that are about care, <laughs> like how to be good friends, how to care for your neighbor, and how to have productive generative disagreement how to apologize when you are wrong um 
And so they are about more than anything, these cartoons are about delight. And I think of delight as serious work that um, especially in the anti-Black settler, colonial, anti-queer world, like trying to have a measure of delight and joy when so much of this white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchal world conspires against, you know, the capacity for joy is like, yeah, that's, it takes work to do that. Like, it's so much easier, it seems to me, to default on a kind of joylessness because it's so hard. Like, this world is so difficult. I don't blame people for, you know, having difficulty with joy. But I think that one of the reasons people have difficulty with joy is because we have relegated joy to the zone of like of the of the immature and of the silly. Like joy is something that kids have, which means that we actually don't know how to be kind to to young people because we think that anything that young people do is silly um, and it's not serious. But like you know it's not mature. Like, you know, you're not supposed to watch cartoons because you're mature, like, unless it's Bob's Burgers, which is also funny, but like a different kind of cartoon. Um, and so I'm constantly trying to figure out ways to cultivate joy as a practice of seriousness. Um, and not, but also not wanting to transform it into something that is, um, I want it to be taken seriously, but I don't think I need it to be transformed into something that is serious um, or mature, so yeah. to speak. Like, because it because then it just does the same kind of move. It just means that, okay, so joy can be this thing that is mature, but still there are things that kids do that, you know, other people should. And I'm just like, young people probably have the key to how we can survive a whole lot of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I think that by trying to talk about the joy in the garden that um, the little Nas X characters are experiencing, um, I think it's important because it's, you know, it's important work. It's, and it's not natural, whatever the word natural might mean. It's not, it doesn't come to us except through struggle because this world again conspires against our capacity for joy. And so you have to you have to work for it. I want to I want to keep working for a more just world so that joy isn't something that we have to work for or that we have to labor for. But in this particular world, we have to labor for it. And so it's something that I'm willing to fight for, something that I'm willing to argue for, and it's something that I'm willing to um, with others um, attempt to cultivate a disposition. Oh, I, I'm glad that you let yourself ramble because I think I, lo I love listening to you talk. <laughs> like I'm like I don't I you you could feel free just to talk for 90 minutes, but it's I have I have a few responses. One, um, Pastor Ashley, who's on the call with us here, um, hey. yeah, and uh, she um, dressed up as a uh, ruby of ruby and sapphire for her wedding, and even painted herself red, <laughs> um, which I love, but. Um, yeah, I think one of the things we often talk about on the podcast, you know, our our tagline is less certain, more curious. And I think one of the things that we are very that we find very compelling is just the concept of play, almost like on a psychological level, like getting into that flow state 
and that it seems that if you get into a state of play, um, maybe even having fun, you might be able to resolve conflict easier. You might be able to think yeah. of more creative solutions to problems, but we approach solution conversations with such seriousness and maturity mm-hmm. that we don't find the other solutions that might be there. Yeah. Um, another thing I think about is your Facebook post. Cause I'm like, I guess we're both over 40. So we're one of the few people on this call who probably are on Facebook, but I think <laughs> <Sorry>. you, <laughs> you, you know, you're, you constantly have me laughing on Facebook, you know, and I, I think that's your, you know, you, you practice what you preach in that space. A lot of the times, I mean, I know some of the posts probably aren't for me sometimes, but one of the ones I was laughing at so much was when you got everybody trying to like guess what Stacey Abrams was saying in this picture (laughs) and it went on forever. I was like, that provided me like a week of entertainment. (laughs) That was me literally. I don't know. (laughs) No, I've been going through a very long protracted something akin to a breakup. And it's like, let's just do something else to distract us from (laughs) And, you know, I looked at the picture, the first picture of Stacey Abrams, and I said, it looks like she is singing a song in a church. And so let's look at all of, and it dawned on me that a bunch of pictures of her that I'd seen had looked like her singing songs in Black Pentecostal churches. And so I said, let's post a bunch of pictures and, like, narrate what songs she might be singing. <laughs> and, you know, it was, I think, I think it's really important to be playful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know like like joy play is um important and it is something that is conspired against often and unless play is supposed to have a purpose so you can play certain kinds of video games so that you know you can join the u.s army or something but you're not supposed to have a kind of play whose purpose is the play itself, mm-hmm. that, that the purpose of this is, you know, this laughter. It's not about it being transformed into something else to be um, utilized by the military so that we can be the strongest nation in the earth or nation in the world, whatever you want to say. That what if the, the purpose of this play is the play? And so I try to really... Um, I, I try to compel myself to remember that there is something worth living for, that there is something, that the playfulness and the laughter is the thing that I want. And so I try to do it every day to remind myself that it doesn't, it doesn't make the difficulty go away, but it at least gives me a reminder of what it is that I am trying to protect or what it is that I'm hoping to experience by fighting against various modalities which injustice is enacted so that the laughter and the play and the silliness can come. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it is that sort of impact of capitalism probably that has us thinking like, oh, you cultivate play so that eventually you can turn that into a business, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like capitalism is about the transformation of any, everything into um, a, a good that can be exchanged on markets mm-hmm. and ultimately that can be um, 
produced through exploiting laborers who produce it <laughs> for someone else's profit. Right. And, you know, I'm interested in play that doesn't have the use value. Play, play that, that, you know, resists its own, you know, being monetized or being sold. Because at its best, what laughter is, is like, it's just joy. Like, and, you know, you can go to a comedy club, but that doesn't beat what happens in, you know, when you sit in, in a church and you're not supposed to be laughing and you're sitting across from someone and you're trying not to look at that person because if y'all look at each other, you're going to start laughing. You can't, mon- you can't monetize that. <laughs> like, that's, that's about the feeling of it. Yeah. And... You know, it might not be, you know, decorous to laugh at that moment, but the feeling of trying to stifle that laughter is itself so joyful, right? Like trying to figure out a way to breathe and to hold your head and to not look at your friends. Like there's so much like physicality that goes into that. And I'm like, yeah, you can't monetize that. And like that's the, that is the kind of thing that I'm really interested in those kinds of, and like, you can't predetermine it. You can't plan it. It has to happen as a result of being in relation, like through the encounters that you have that produce the occasion for you to have even this moment of laughter or stifled laughter. And so like, what are the ways that we can cultivate a space or multiple kinds of spaces where that kind of generative um, life in the flesh can happen. Um, you know, sometimes it's laughter, sometimes it's song, sometimes it's, you know, sitting, I just watched this um, very short video that was on TikTok apparently, that then got put on Twitter. I don't have TikTok, I don't even know what it is. Um, but it's this, um, it this black man who is sitting and his friend says, are you okay? And he says, no. And he says, and the friend says, do you want to talk about it? And he says, not really. And then his friend says, do you mind if I sit with you? And he says, that's okay. Mm. And so the friend just sits down and like looks around and smiles. And then the video ends. It's like, that's, that, that's the thing. That's it. That I'm interested in that kind of, that sitting with that is, you know, sometimes that sitting with is laughter, or sometimes that sitting with is um, sitting with someone through mourning and loss. And sometimes that sitting with is getting to know you because I have butterflies. And sometimes that sitting with is um, being deeply in awe. I know I'm talking to, you know, young Christians. So sometimes <laughs> being in awe and in enraptured wonder because of the delight of, you know, your feelings of, of spirit. But like, it, it is that moment that I'm interested in how can we cultivate our spaces and our relationships so, so that we might continue to feel, the, to feel a kind of release to be in those kinds of relations with one another. Um, 
as a youth pastor, it's like I've had to have a lot of con- discipline over the years because if I start saying be quiet too much when I'm giving a talk and I haven't done that in a while in front of like actual people, then people will start to giggle more. So like the more I emphasize it, the more they start to laugh. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I got to really. <laughs> um, it's like you say you're not supposed to laugh. All right. Well, yeah. So this is like a perfect um, amount of people for like potential questions. So I just want to say we have a Sean until 830 and I want to make sure we honor his time and end at 830. But uh, I'll bring up like one more thing about Lil Nas X. And then um, maybe in like six or seven minutes, if you guys all want to, I mean, it's like now you're kind of part of the podcast. So if you have some questions you want to ask a Sean, I think anything goes, anything that he might've mentioned or anything else that has come up from, for you in this that you'd want to hear from a Sean on. Um, I would love for you to have a chance to interact. So uh, I'm just, I'm just giving you that prompt now so you can have like six minutes to think about it. Um, but as we sort of wind down <laughs> the little Nas X, um, I'll just read the last little part of your article uh, and you, you're sort of engaging with a tweet that he wrote. Um, you know, he says, I spent my entire teenage years hating myself because of the shit y'all preached would happen to me because I was gay. So I hope you're mad, stay mad and feel the same anger you teach us to have towards ourselves. That's what little Nas X said. And you said, in other words, you say we're going to straight to hell. What if we're already there? Because what is more terrifying than living and loving a queer black life in an anti-queer anti-black world? What do you what do you have in terms of power to control when the thing you try to wield against us ain't a thing we're afraid of? You got outrage. Oh crap! I, I lost my well. Just go from that because I I lost my last page. But <laughs> you got outrage and some other stuff. Yeah, yeah. The there's like outrage, never, outrage, and a comma. I'm like, where where's the next part? What? <laughs> I never know what I say. So <laughs> it's like I couldn't even tell you. But I, that was a, a powerful tweet to you know to accompany the video. Definitely a powerful, uh, you know, I think that he is one of the best um, utilizers of social media that I've ever experienced. He knows how to use Twitter yeah, more than a whole bunch of people. Yeah. And he knows how to marshal someone's anger against. It's really fascinating to, 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 to recognize the various ways that he uses people's anger they're deeply misplaced and and projected anger. Um, how he really he he metabolizes it, he gives it back to them, mm-hmm. and he does it in like less than what two hundred and eighty characters. It's yeah. really it's fascinating. Yeah, it's fat. But you know, it's like you know he's he's being very clear that I want you all to feel uh, the same rage that we have been forced, coerced to feel because you think that there is something fundamentally wrong with us. And I'm not, he's like, I'm not saying there's something fundamentally wrong with you. I'm saying that your inability to even engage this music video, which is about killing the devil, the thing that y'all said that y'all want to do, right. <laughs> like your inability to even engage it on its own terms lets me know that your anger is something that is it's yours. So stop giving it. Yeah. And and he, he's just, it seems to me, he has a very kind of clear insight at the very least about how those messages have been harmful and how he's trying to speak against those messages so that other young folks 
and older folks too, don't have to internalize those messages and might actually think in alternative ways about who they are and who they might be. Um, this, I guess the, I don't have the tweet in front of me, but um, this seemed like in the spirit of a Sean, he sent a tweet out recently after his BET performance, which was also really powerful just in terms of the iconic nature of this black queer kiss at the end of his performance. And then he said, you know, that one was pretty strong and powerful. The one I just read, but then he was very vulnerable the next day and said he is, he was shaking and nervous uh, the entire performance uh, because mm-hmm. he knew this was the first time he'd ever done something like this. And I just, uh, again, was, was, amazed at his ability to be vulnerable and soft too while being brave and strong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I think that we sometimes, uh, valorize bravery as a kind of strength without, and I also think we valorize strength and, you know, I'm not really interested in in strength anymore. I don't know. (laughs) I'm like, maybe, maybe we should, you know, prefer weakness. Um, if you know if strength is supposed to be the antithesis of weakness and that's a kind of ableist construction Mm. and what if we all sort of recognize that weakness is just a call to be in the social world with one another um to be in relation with one another to help one another to care for one another to tend to one another in our imperfection um as opposed to attempting to produce perfection what if and thus strength, what if we just um, recognize our weakness or our fragility? And so I think there's something very powerful about saying I'm scared um, and doing it anyway, right? Yeah. Except for roller coasters. I don't believe in those. <laughs> I don't believe before. in roller coasters. It's never happening. Like, <laughs> you know, I always talk about like, you got to work through your fear. I'm never getting on a roller coaster. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Like I have, you know, I have my boundaries. <laughs> my boundary is my stomach. And I'm just like, I don't want to feel that thing that you feel when you put your hands up. And, it's, it is not fun, delightful, joyful, or pleasurable to me to go to amusement parks. So I don't do those. But other than that, I feel like we got to work through our fear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to, you know, work through your fear other than amusement parks, unless that's your thing. Please enjoy them for me because I'm not, I'm never going, never going to the music. That's funny because I I mean I don't mind roller coasters that much, but I definitely have the same posture towards skydiving. I'm like never going to skydive. I'm definitely afraid of no bikes. roller coasters and let's throw that in no yeah, skydiving. No skydiving, no carousels, yeah. no merry-go-rounds. <laughs> oh, that's taken to a whole new level. <laughs> uh, All of that stuff just makes it's. I think it's like the, no, thank the you. Circular. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like it's it's too much momentum and yeah uh, no. <laughs> but other than that, please work with me. Yes, yes. Like you know, it's fear is something I think to honor, it's something to recognize, it's something to um sit with, mm-hmm. but you know, to take seriously. Yeah. And because fear tells us, you know, fear can tell us that, you know, you are trying to be intentional, or fear tells us that you are trying like that you don't want to act in a rash way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we can't let, ha- we can't allow for fear to have the final say. And so I think it's very beautiful to say something like I'm scared or I'm fearful or I have fear, but also to recognize 
that oftentimes there is this desire to produce fear in others so that you might not then produce more just and ethical relations with one another. And recognizing that difference, I think, is really important. Oh, thank you. Um, okay, so let's see. Um, I would invite any of you to ask questions, but it seems like Joseph is starting. So uh, I, I guess I'll just read this so everybody can hear it because this is like an audio uh, thing people will be listening to eventually. But um, Joseph said, hey, Sean, I wanted to know what was kind of what was kind of like your story from going from growing up in the church to being agnostic. Personally, I am at a place where I don't blame God for the persecution I received from the church. So like I was just wondering what made you decide being agnostic rather than solely turning away from the church, severing Christian theology from one's faith, I would assume is really hard. So how did you do that? Hi, Joseph. Thank you for your question. Um, You know, why agnosticism? You know, I think that um, I started to organize my life according to a kind of a, a principle or kind of a kind of practice of agnosticism, mostly because for me, what agnosticism says is that, you know, deities, gods may or may not exist, but if they do, we can never know. And for me, I take it a step further, like, if they do, it doesn't matter to me. Um, That God concepts are not the way that I relate to one another. And so I don't organize this, like my sort of, my definition of agnosticism for me is I do not organize my life around God concepts, Um, or I don't organize my life around religious um, rituals and practices either. Um, I can participate in them every now and then. Um, Like if someone gets married and I know them, I might go to that ritual ceremony but I'm not interested in sort of organizing my life around these practices. Um, And so practices that are grounded in like God concepts. And so I started really feeling like that was a useful way to think about relation. when I started having less anxiety about the things that I enjoyed about the church. And I know that that sounds really weird. Um, But at one point I felt that I needed to defend Christianity over and against everything else. Even when I began to interrogate like what people were saying about like, well, the Bible says this about queer people. The Bible says that this is an abomination. The next one, Romans 1 says this. Leviticus 6 and Leviticus, what, whatever it is, says this. First Corinthians 6 and 9, I think, says <laughs> this. And like, there was a time when I felt it really necessary to defend Christianity. And to say, you just don't understand those scriptures or those are mistranslations. Um, I am no longer interested in, and I I felt that I needed to defend Christianity because I still believe that I needed to go to heaven. Um, And honestly, once I stopped believing in heaven and hell as like in in goals, um, it made it 
easier for me to feel less anxious about the Christian narrative for how the deity called God relates to the world. And once I relaxed my anxiety about that, I was able to say that there is value in some of these stories. I really like the stories about Jesus sometimes, unless he's calling a woman a dog. And then it's like, well, maybe I don't like that story as much. <laughs> um, but like, I like some of the stories of Jesus. I like some of Paul. Paul, who's a deeply terrible person when it comes to slavery, like, you know, and sometimes women too. But then sometimes Paul is very also like, congratulating women for the work that they're doing and to build churches. So it's like, Paul is also confused. Um, and so, but like, I began to have less anxiety about thinking about how are these narratives that are useful for thinking about how I can inhabit the world and how I can produce just and ethical relations. And once I relaxed that anxiety, it also meant that I didn't need to organize my life around proving Christianity to be right. I don't care if it's right. And so if I didn't need to prove that Christianity is right, I, I also didn't need to prove that God is real. And so I, it's for me, it's not like I don't have to, I'm not interested in organizing or thinking about my relation to producing um, thought and practice with regards to the rightness of certain kinds of theological, excuse me, and doctrinal positions and orientations. Um, does that is that is that answering something like the question, Joseph? I'm not sure. He said, "Thank you so much. Your response really helped me. Not saying I'm agnostic now, but the understanding of your relation between yes." I wasn't done typing. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Done. Okay. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. You know. It's, it's hard to type. Oh, that's why I like bringing you up so often, Ashan. And um, I think I think you know the, your your philosophy or the things you're writing about have the texture of Christ, the type of Christianity I would want to be discussing with the students. And I don't think that a thinker or a writer needs in any way to be a Christian for us to engage with their work mm-hmm. in a youth group that calls itself Christian. So. Um, well, my only worry about that, um, and this isn't about you, but yeah. like it was one of my initial, one of the reasons why, another reason why I started thinking more along the kind of agnostic path was because when I was concerned about proving the rightness of Christianity, but also was trying to widen my understanding of like, spirituality, there were times when I would try to force things to be Christian. And I think that, you know, people can get narratives and strategies and models from various kinds of communities. And I'm, I think that, that is what we should be doing. But I'm, I'm often worried that in progressive Christianities, there's also this impulse to transform those things into Christianity. Right, right. Like what what this really is is Christian. <laughs> right. They just don't know it. And yeah. so, like, it's like, how do we hold on the one hand the generativity of like um, a narrative that you know a person who is Muslim? Yeah. It's, you know, it's it's kind of like how 
some of my pro more progressive um, comrades will talk about Malcolm X, but only insofar as it helps to sort of articulate a Christian vision for the yes, world. I'm like, yes. well, yeah, but he wasn't that. And like, yeah, we have to be able to honor the fact that he wasn't that. It doesn't mean that you can't think with um, someone who is outside of your tradition at all. It just means that we have to figure out what are the ways that we we have to we have to ensure that we do not produce like colonizing logics against other people and say, I'm the only way that you are useful to me is if I transform you. And this is this is another reason why um, Joseph, um, Joseph, I was interested in agnosticism it's because I didn't have to feel the compulsion to transform things into a kind of Christian practice in order for it to then um, underscore the rightness of the sort of the Christianity that I was interested in. Um, I'll stop there. I, lo I love that you said that as a clarification. And, and sometimes we say these things and some of the things we've said in this conversation bring me back 10 years to a way I used to think. And that's a good clarifying point because I'm, I, yeah, it's not like, it's not like I'm bringing this in because I, I, I could see myself doing this maybe 10 years ago saying like, oh, this writer, this writer saying something and they, they're, it's actually Christian and like trying to fit it. And yeah, that's definitely not what I'm, I'm trying to do. And, and it's like exactly right. Like with a, a youth group called Rebel, I wouldn't want to sanitize any of these people. Yeah, yeah. You know? So yeah. Malcolm X being a great example of somebody you wouldn't want to sanitize. Um. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The lonely letters. Yeah. Um, any other questions, you guys, who are on the screen? You can you can unmute yourself and ask a question. Um, obviously, Sean isn't a, a very intimidating person. At least I don't think so. <laughs> I'm sorry if I am. <laughs> or you can type a question if you if you have a question or a response, or if you just want to tell a story, or. Um, yeah, well, or or not. I guess I guess we'll talk for a little bit more. But if you have a if you have an interjection at this point, feel more than welcome and invited to bring in an interjection or a question. Um, yeah, Ashan, I guess I'm just wondering uh, for you, like, just in terms of you know hearing about your life right now, like it's sort of turning into post pandemic. You're traveling for the first time. I know you have. Yeah, I'm locking that project. Down yeah, <laughs> wasn't as fun. You got to, you had to get on a plane. <laughs> and the Delta variant is happening. I'm, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I don't think we are post-pandemic at all. Okay, I shouldn't have said um, that phrase. <laughs> no, I no, I get it. But also, this this will be the only airplane traveling that I do probably maybe this year. I'm yeah. just really, yeah. This Delta variant is looking kind of serious. Yeah, yeah. Well, just what what's what's on the horizon for you, just in terms of your book or your art or your teaching or your writing? Like, what's going on for you? Yeah, I'm just you know I'm trying to work on various projects. I'm I'm going to be driving to an artist residency in the middle of July to get some um, visual and sound work at least begun. I don't think I'll finish anything, but I'm trying to um, begin visioning some projects. And so I'll be working on that this summer. And I'm doing some writing in um, two or maybe I don't know, 
two or three books, who knows, um, yeah. about the Hammond organ and something else about black blackness. Um, and, you know, I'll be teaching again in the fall and September. So there's, there's a lot that is, you know, normal, like in terms of teaching, I do that every fall and spring, but the art practices I'm really excited about because it'll be a chance for me, especially at the artist residency later this summer, it'll be a chance for me to have really concentrated time mm -hmm. to and space, huge um, studio space to just sit, not to sit, but like to, to take some time to paint and to take some time to use my exacto knife. And yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to being able to create something with my hands and hopefully create some things with my voice as well. Mm. So, yeah. And maybe even your feet, right? And probably some feet too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's, uh, I know I probably love to end early for you so you can get some food, but um, uh, I guess just in the spirit of the day, you know, oh, oh, we have a question. What kind of situation question that I'd like to ask, talk about? Okay, Rhea, do you want to write it or do you want to unmute? Um, I will unmute. Can okay. you hear me okay? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay, uh, thank you so much for hosting this um, and speaking, Ashan. I really appreciate um, both of you and Scott. Um, so my question is more of like a, um, situation. So I, um, go by she, they pronouns. And mm -hmm. I recently in, right before the pandemic, um, I, I go through some mental health issues. And so I recently started attending an LGBTQ affirming church, which mm -hmm. I didn't really, I didn't really know existed, um, before. And so I was just going through a really hard time. And my mom found me like through the coworkers that she worked with. She asked a coworker like, Hey, like you seem like you are in the LGBTQ community. And she like, you know, reached out and said, do you know a church? And he yeah. kindly directed her to a church and I started going. And now, um, I, I work at the church, but the church is mainly composed of uh, elder gays, mainly like baby boomers, maybe even some of the silent generation. And they're sweet, but some of them don't understand the concept of pronouns. Mm -hmm. And like some of them like didn't even understand the term bisexual. Like they were more so aware of older terms. And so like all a lot of people knew were uh, lesbian and gay. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so me as a younger person, I'm not, a, I, I wouldn't say necessarily I'm an elder millennial, but like, you know, I'm in the millennial age range and um, they are kind of looking to me as a young person to like, how do we get more young people into the church? And I'm like, you know, I don't even know all the terms that Gen Zers, um, uh, oh, Joseph put something, something in the chat. He said, uh, where am I located? I'm located in the Metro Detroit area. Mm -hmm. Um, but the church, um, that I go to is a metropolitan community church. Yeah. So yeah. Those church like that. I didn't know until I joined this church, but the MCC churches were formed by a gay man or a gay pastor. Yeah. Um, and it's made to be inclusive. And so I didn't yeah. even know these existed, but 
so I guess I'm, this is very long winded, but no, the question, <laughs> the question is, is like, how do we make space for young people in general? Cause I know a lot of people go through religious trauma mm -hmm. and, you know, I want to make space. I want to, I want to help welcome young Gen Zers, millennials, whoever, um, but it's just kind of a matter of like, how do I help prepare the congregation? Like, you know, if we have somebody come in and then they're immediately misgendered, like yeah. that's not welcoming, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> so. Thank you for that um, question. I think it's really um, necessary um, and it's complicated and it's, um, it's labor intensive, but I think that the, you know, I I want to ask churches these days, like, what, like, why why do you want to exist? And that that's a real question. Like, what is what do you think is the purpose of gathering? Like, what what is gathering together with other folks supposed to mean for you? And what is your desire for young people? Like, what 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 is young? What is having young people supposed to prove? Like, once we begin to answer those questions. What is the purpose of gathering? Um, why do we want to have people? Um, why do we need young people? I think you can begin to get a sense for the moral and ethical sort of values that are guiding um, how those questions are answered. And if the answers are something along the lines of, we want to create community with people so that they can feel loved, so that they can feel um, joy, so that they might, in a space that is welcoming um, and, and caring, experience um, movements of the spirit together with us, I think that in, in that case, then you can say, all right, then we have work to do, y'all. We can't like assume that we know what gender is. And it's not just that young people are the ones who are like saying, well, I am they, them. It's that perhaps in your generation, there might not have been a language, perhaps, perhaps to describe a different sense of gender but that they are not inventing new ways of being as much as they are trying to compel us to see that there are other ways that we might together think about what it means to be gendered in the first place or what it means to inhabit our bodies in terms of sexuality that, you know, gay and lesbian ain't the only two choices. That there are other, there are other modalities through which our sense of affectional relationality can occur, including like asexuality, something that people might not necessarily consider even though lots of people practice it. And so I think that one, I'm always interested in asking what do we believe the purpose of gathering is and, and using the way that we answer that question to guide us to more um, careful, literally taking more time, being more careful with the ways we engage people that we are saying we are trying to 
welcome to our communities. If you really want to create a more just and ethical space so that more people can experience the movement of God, then you got to say that perhaps just like the churches that have excluded you, which became the occasion for the creation of the MCC in the first place, then we have to say we can't then in, engage in that same practice of excluding because then we're just, we're no better literally than the ones from which we have left. We are engaging in a similar kind of move. And so I think that would be the first place that I would begin. I think that having workshops about gender um, and gender pronouns is important, even if we presume that the older people wouldn't understand what it would be. Because I think, you know, there was this fascinating Twitter thread a couple of months ago where people were saying things like, I came out to my parents as, um, as bisexual or I came out to my parents as um, non-binary. And my parents said to me, like, don't you think I wish I could be a girl if I could be? But I can't. And it's And their response was, my parents just admitted to me that they are also perhaps trans or at least perhaps non-binary. That I think that oftentimes people don't feel that they have permission to ask the question. And so like having workshops, even in absence of the, the group that they want to welcome, having workshops, having conversations can compel the ones who are already there to begin to ask themselves questions about, well, what is my sense of gender? Do I think I know what I'm talking about? Do I know what, I, you know, like these are, for me, these are never settled questions. They are always ongoing questions. They are always like things that you're going to be thinking about um, as long as you're breathing. And so I don't know if that's necessarily helpful, but those are at least the questions that would um, that I would try to use to guide my movement into attempts to think about how we might answer them. I think that is just, wow. Like, I wish I could put like an applause, uh, <laughs> like, well, I, can, I think I can with the applause emoji, but <laughs> thank go. you so much for uh, that <laughs> response. I, I really appreciate uh, all of your insight and wisdom. Thank you for the question. It's really helpful. I appreciate it. Um, anybody else with like six minutes left to go on this call want to ask a question or make a comment or share anything? I don't know if anybody's even still here. We have no idea. They're probably all brushing <laughs> their teeth or something. <laughs> that's all. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> Um, Ray, I also say like, as somebody that's done youth ministry for like 20 years, I, I have this hope to like, try to talk to churches about, um, you know, Sean was talking about the goal, like what is the goal of what we're doing? And especially a, a church's posture towards young people, I almost want to reverse what it seems that most churches are doing, which is trying to, and this is a loaded word, like assimilate the young people into their congregation. And it's almost like it's the opposite. Like, Adults should be trying to do everything they can to change to accommodate the younger generation. Like it's on the adults to make changes, not students. Like young people should be able to, you know, be who they are and be supported in all that they are. <laughs> but most churches don't have that, you know, posture towards young people. But well, we also have to believe that young people are people with thoughts and right, right. <laughs> and visions and goals and, and disappointments and sadnesses and hopes and desires and like, you know, you got to treat, but like, you know, 
brain development stops around about 25. So it doesn't mean that everything that everyone does is always thoughtful, <laughs> but it means that you have to like actually treat young people as if they are people mm-hmm, <laughs> who mm-hmm. are valuable beyond they're adding numbers to our church or to our community organization or, you know, justifying our existence because look, they're here. It's like, no, it has to be something more than that. Like what, what kinds of relations are we producing with folks is the, for me, the question. Um, Because, you know, like my thing is if, if we're not doing it in absence of them, we're not going to do it when they're there. Like we have to be challenging um, the authority of the gender binary, if no one that describes himself as uh, as non-binary is there, you still have to do the work. Like, <laughs> gender ain't just a non-binary thing for like people who say I'm non-binary. It's a non-binary thing for all of us. And the thing that I think we should be learning, um, not by using people as sort of educational portals as my friend Trudy might say, like, but like we have to be learning from people that, oh, maybe we actually don't have any of these things figured out. And so we can't wait for them to come to figure it out because like we haven't figured, we don't have it figured out. Like we don't know what it is. And, and so what if we actually pr- stop pretending? Like, you know, these boomers, I actually guarantee you don't know what gender is either. Like I'm convinced of it. <laughs> And like sometimes the resistance to certain kinds of language is because there is a there is a desire for being settled and they don't want to be unsettled no more. And it's like, well, but no, that's not how that's not how life works. Like we always gotta learn something. And so I think, you know, we gotta treat young people like they are people with thoughts and yeah, I'll stop. I'll stop. No, I mean, just in terms of the podcast, we are, we want to help people live less certain, more curious lives. So it's like, I don't know if the church can even engage with that concept, but if you approach these things by being a little less certain, I, I, I have a deep belief that it can be very helpful. But um, just in terms of winding down, Sean, like, you know, this is Queer Youth of Faith Day. We really actually made it and wanted to not be a Christian thing, but just Queer Youth of Faith all over the world. And I don't know, this might be a cheesy way to end, but there's whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in terms of like the spirit of what we were talking about with Lil Nas X and starting off with this place of fear that I think a lot of our students can relate to. um, And I think it's, I've heard it been said so many times that it just takes one positive message that somehow our kids encounter. Uh, You know, they're Mm -hmm. scrolling through Instagram, they're scrolling through TikTok and they find us and they find this one podcast or this one reel on the Instagram and that changes it all for them. Um, but just in terms of, you know, young people around the world that might be living in fear in terms of like religious persecution or these imagery that comes up in this little Nas X video, like, uh, do you have like a, a, a hopeful message or, or something you'd want to convey? Yeah. Um, I just say that, Otherwise is always possible that, you know, and otherwise isn't about the future. It's, it's about the alternatives to what we have been called, what we have been taught is normal, often through violence and harm, um, that there are, there are alternatives to what is supposedly normal and that 
those alternatives already exist. They are already being practiced. And so my hope is that, you know, you find spaces of care where you can be curious and spaces of concern where you can be uncertain. And that if you are living in a space where you feel uncared for and unconcerned about, that I hope that you still find momentary um, places of escape so that you can be curious, so that you can ask questions. And if you need to retreat from those spaces for safety, um, retreat from those spaces for safety. But my hope is that you can cultivate curiosity and uncertainty as a disposition and as a posture and as a literal practice. And in so doing, I think that you can find that the uncertainty might initially, and, you know, for a long time, might feel um, difficult to navigate. But I think that if you give in to the currents of uncertainty and curiosity, like waves in a ocean or something like that. I was trying to be poetic. <laughs> but if you give in to the current of it and let it move you, there is a kind of hopefulness that I think you can feel, a kind of mm. um, a kind of energy that can infuse you, that can allow you to release a little bit of the anxiety so that you might give in or surrender perhaps to um, curiosity and uncertainty. So my hope is that you can do it as a posture, mm. that you can do it as practice. Yeah, it's funny interest earlier when you were talking about uh, rituals and stuff. It's like maybe that's, you know, a more secular way of thinking about it is just a practice, you know. Mm -hmm. And I don't like the distinction between secular and Christian, but, you know, just. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ashan. I'm, I'm almost, I'm not almost, I'm so sad it's already over. I was so excited to start <laughs> this conversation. Um, but also, everybody, thanks for joining us. Um, it was just thank fun you. to see. I know everybody on this screen right now so it's fun even though they're dark but yeah and, and you, julie said too. yeah um i always end our youth group with a little blessing and oftentimes i i end with things that you've written um so i know it's been a night of reading Ashan things but um this is uh from your otherwise reflections and so everybody listening i guess for the podcast when this goes a lot when we release this on monday but to everybody here too it's like the thing one of the things i love most about Sean's writing is this concept of otherwise possibilities. And he was already alluding to that when he was giving his little bit blessing right now. Um, mm -hmm. But I just think I end our time um, with this little reading from Ashan about otherwise possibilities as a blessing or a benediction of sorts to end our time. And then we'll just end it. So thank you so much, Ashan. Um, so appreciate you. Uh, and this was really, truly a privilege to be able to spend this time with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, here we go. To begin with the otherwise as word, as concept, is to presume that whatever we have is not all that is possible. Otherwise, it is a concept of internal difference, internal multiplicity. 
The otherwise is the disbelief in what is current and a movement towards and an affirmation of imagining other modes of social organization, other ways for us to be with each other. Otherwise as plentitude, otherwise is the enunciation and concept of irreducible possibility, irreducible capacity to create change, to be something else, to explore, to imagine, to live fully, freely, vibrantly. Otherwise Ferguson, otherwise Gaza, otherwise Detroit, otherwise worlds, otherwise expresses an unrest and a discontent, a seeking to conceive dreams that allow us to wake up laughing, tears of joy in our eyes, dreams that have us saying, I hope this comes true. Thanks, Sean, and thanks everybody Thank for being you. here. Thank you all. All right. Bye. <laughs> have a good evening, everybody. Bye. <laughs>